Hey, history enthusiasts, you get not one, but two events in history today. On with the show. Hello, welcome to This Day in History class, where we flip through the book of history and bring you a new page every day. The day was March 19th, 1935. Early in the afternoon, a 16-year-old Black Puerto Rican boy named Lino Rivera was seen stealing a 10-cent pocket knife from an S.H. Cress & Company store in Harlem, New York. The owner called the police, and a crowd of people gathered at the store. Rumors began spreading that the police had killed Rivera. Soon, what started as a minor shoplifting incident turned into a full-on riot— fueled by economic upheaval, frustration with racial discrimination, unemployment, and distrust of the police. Lena was in the back of the S.H. Crest Nickel and Dime store at 256 West 125th Street in Harlem. Lena was spotted trying to steal a penknife from the store, so employees tried to detain him. But Lena resisted. He grabbed onto a column in the store and he bit the hands of the two employees who were trying to hold him back. Soon enough, though, he gave in and stopped struggling. By the time police officers arrived at the store, people in the area had noticed the scuffle and began crowding around the store. The shopkeeper decided not to press charges against Lino, and to avoid the crowd, the officers escorted him out of the building through the basement and out of a back door onto 124th Street. But at this point, the crowd had become more hostile as rumors spread that the officers had beaten Lino up. And that fire was stoked even more when an ambulance arrived to see to the employees' bitten hands and a hearse scheduled to pick up a body from the funeral parlor next door parked in one of the store's parking spaces. The false word of Lino's death spread through Harlem. Harlem was primarily Black, and African-American culture thrived in the neighborhood, though the Harlem Renaissance was nearing its end. Still, Black people in Harlem felt the effects of legal segregation, institutional racism, and police brutality. And Harlem was largely neglected by the New York City government. Distrust of the government and law enforcement was rampant and justified. At the time, the country was in the midst of the Great Depression. Harlem, specifically, was plagued by rising poverty as well as poor health care and education. On top of that, Black people faced racial discrimination when it came to employment, business ownership, and housing. And the Crest store where the incident happened was known for discriminating against Black people in employment. All of these factors came to a head when Lena was rumored to be dead. Police attempted to squash the rumors that Lena was beaten and killed by officers, but were unsuccessful. The crowds turned rowdy. The Crest store closed for the day as throngs of people began setting fire to buildings, smashing windows, and stealing and destroying property. Some people who attempted to hold a public meeting to protest police brutality were arrested and charged with unlawful assembly. At one point, an officer fired a gun into a crowd of rioters and shot a man, who died a few days later in a hospital. Several thousand people had joined the riot to protest police brutality. Stores put up signs that said phrases like, 
we employ Black people in their windows to keep people from looting and destroying their property. Officers who tried to disperse the crowds only met resistance. The rioting went on through the night and into the next day. All in all, more than 100 people were arrested, dozens of people were injured, a couple hundred businesses had damaged property, and four people died from injuries sustained during the riot. Estimates for the property damage totaled about $2 million. The next day, Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia said the riot was instigated and artificially stimulated by a few irresponsible individuals. District Attorney William C. Dodge said that he would launch an investigation into the communist motivations for the riot. But LaGuardia was convinced racial tensions caused the riots and months later created a biracial commission to investigate the riot and the factors that led to it. The commission included people like sociologist E. Franklin Frazier and writer Alan Locke. The report that came out of that investigation was released a little over a year later. It was called The Negro in Harlem, a report on social and economic conditions responsible for the outbreak of March 19, 1935. And it recommended anti-discrimination efforts in employment, housing, education, and law enforcement. Yet the mayor suppressed the report because it revealed the true living conditions of Black New Yorkers. After the riots, the city did work to make some social and infrastructure improvements. New York officers began receiving racial sensitivity training. Harlem Hospital was enlarged, and there was a push to get more Black people in city government. But discrimination did not just suddenly disappear in Harlem, and another race riot broke out in the neighborhood in 1943. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And I like to add that the riot marked a shift in uprisings, too. Sociologist Alan D. Grimshaw later called the 1935 incident the first manifestation of a modern form of racial rioting, since it was directed at the whole community and its property, rather than being a clash between certain racial groups or people. If you have anything else interesting to say about the riot, please leave us a note at TDIHC Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you again tomorrow for more tidbits of history. Hello, history lovers. I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a show that uncovers history one day at a time. The day was March 19, 1882. The cornerstone of the Sagrada Familia, a Roman Catholic minor basilica in Barcelona, was laid. More than a century after construction began, work on the basilica is still not complete. In 1866, bookshop owner Josep Maria Bocabella founded the Spiritual Association of the Devotees of St. Joseph. On his way back to Spain after visiting Rome, he discovered the Sanctuary of the Holy House in Laredo. Bocabella was inspired by its design, and he decided to build a similar church in Barcelona. 
So the association began advocating for the construction of an expiatory temple dedicated to the Holy Family. The Holy Family is made up of the Christ Child, Virgin Mary, and Saint Joseph. The association received several donations, and in 1881, it purchased land in Barcelona to build the temple on. Initially, architect Francisco de Paula de Villar was tasked with designing the church. Though Bocabella had an exact replica of the Laredo sanctuary in mind, Villar convinced him that a neo-Gothic temple was the route to take. His plan was to design a church with three naves in a Latin cross floor plan, a crypt, seven chapels, a pointed bell tower, and outer buttresses. The cornerstone of the project was laid in 1882 on March 19th, the feast day of St. Joseph. Construction began on the foundations for the crypt, but by 1883, differences of opinion over the construction of the Sagrada Familia led Villar to step down from his role on the project. That year, Antoni Godi was named the architect of the temple. He was a young architect, but he set about making changes to the original plan. He made the vaults higher in the crypt, made the windows bigger, and changed its central staircase and entrance. The crypt was completed in 1889, but Godi's plan revamped the design of the entire project, which would be more grand and awe-inspiring. It would have a Latin cross floor plan with five naves, a transept, a cloister surrounding the building, and 12 bell towers. Work began on the apse, which is a semicircular recess within the building that's covered with a domed vault. And in 1892, the foundations were laid for the nativity facade. The portal of the rosary, an entrance to the nativity cloister, was completed, and the provisional schools of the Sagrada Familia for the children of workers and people in the neighborhood were built. Godi's work on the expiatory temple of the Sagrada Familia dominated much of his career. He came up with the final design for the naves and roofs in 1923. And in 1925, construction was completed on the first bell tower on the nativity facade. Gaudi was so dedicated to the project that he pretty much abandoned all his other work and even lived next to his workshop in his last months. He died in 1926 after being hit by a tram and was buried in the crypt. But after Gaudi died, construction on the Sagrada Familia continued. Over the years, construction on the Basilica has dealt with several setbacks, including fire and vandalism during the Spanish Civil War and the design of the Western Passion facade has been criticized by many people. The building is projected to be completed by 2026. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you're hungry for more history, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at T-D-I-H-C Podcast. If you prefer something a little bit more formal, then you can write us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you tomorrow, same place. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.